Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast. I'm Brian O'Connor, Lead Content Editor for No-Till Farmer. The Andersons sponsors this program, which features stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they are released. I'd like to take a moment to thank the Andersons for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. A nutrient management program is essential to maximizing crop productivity and yields. Providing the right nutrients at the right time throughout the growing season is key. The Andersons high yield programs make it easy to plan a season long approach for many row and specialty crops. Visit andersonsplantnutrient.com slash high yield to download the high yield programs and get instant product recommendations for corn, soybeans, wheat, potatoes, and more. Today's podcast is a rebroadcast of one of the most popular influencers and innovators podcasts, originally uploaded in December 2019. Formerly with the USDA's Agricultural Research Service, entomologist Dr. Jonathan Lundgren left the ARS in 2016 and started up Blue Dasher Farm and the Ectasis Foundation to promote the expanded use of regenerative agriculture practices across the country. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, editor Frank Lesseter talks with Jonathan about his motivations for making this move and how he hopes to remove barriers to the adoption of regenerative agriculture. In addition, Jonathan explains how he sees no-till as the starting point for the regenerative movement, the role livestock plays in a resilient farm, what's at stake in converting or not converting to a regenerative mindset and much more. Today we're talking with John Lundgren from Esseline, South Dakota. And John, give us a little background. Did you grow up on a farm? No, I grew up in the suburb of Minneapolis, St. Paul. But back then, it was all agricultural areas, which is pretty strange. <laughs> See it now, urban sprawl, huh? So what led you into becoming an entomologist? Well, I guess I've always had a real interest in animals, and um, I took some entomology classes in college and decided pretty early on that that's the area of biology that I wanted to specialize in. So you went to the University of Minnesota, and then you got your Ph.D. from the University of Illinois, right? That's right, yep. And what did you do after you got your doctorate degree? I got a job with the USDA Ag Research Service, moved to Brookings, South Dakota, and spent 11 years with them. And in 2016, I quit, and we started um, Blue Dasher Farm and Ectasis Foundation. When did you first get hooked up and get excited about no-till? 
Probably while I was with the USDA, I was kind of integrated in with kind of an interdisciplinary team studying things from weed science to soil, cover crops, things like that, before cover crops was were really known. And that's where I was first exposed to this whole concept of no-till and why it was so important to the whole system. So you did a lot of work at ARS. We had you as speaker in, I think, 2014 at our National No-Tillage Conference in Springfield. What uh, led you to leave ARS and go out on your own? Well, I started to meet farmers that were really driving a revolution in agriculture and food production. Uh, They're now being called regenerative farmers, but I don't think that we knew quite what was going on at the time when it was first starting. I tried to change the system from within USDA, trying to recognize and devote resources and meaningful time and effort into helping to fuel this revolution. But it became really clear that, you know, the farmers were just way, way ahead of the science, way, way ahead of the government and the universities on this. And it required a different approach to science and how science fits into that to really help to solve that problem. And so we started a kind of a grassroots, very applied science foundation that was specifically devoted to removing hurdles from regenerative ag. So tell us a little about the research farm, the name and what you're doing, etc. Well, Blue Dasher Farm is located in the middle of kind of nowhere, Dual County, South Dakota. <laughs> it's on an operating farm. It's a regenerative farm itself. I was surprised. I looked at what you have on the website. You got pretty good sized staff and got some acreage and you're hoping to expand, right? That's right. Yeah. Who'd have thunk, huh? You had told me four years ago when we got this started that I'd even still be around. I, I was, I'd be a little surprised. So <laughs> there's not much of an instruction book for what we're trying to do. But I think it speaks volumes that we are still here and even expanding, that this is a real need right now. And really, our research, our science, everything about us is, is funded by the farmers themselves and the beekeepers right. and the ranchers, right? So this is... Uh, I think we're we're in the right place at the right time. The other research farm that's done very well with farmers financing and everything has been Dwayne Beck at uh, PR South Dakota. So are you kind of similar to what he's doing, getting farmers involved in this? Yeah. So Dwayne is a good friend, and we have very similar mindsets on what's going on. Our farm is different, though. Um, I mean, yes, we have the research facility that's here. We don't do a lot of actual on-farm research here at Blue Dasher. Blue Dasher is a demonstration in one system that we are developing to make work. Most of our science is actually done out on area or regional or even nationally on farms themselves. Hmm. So that really increases the relevance of what we're trying to do. So since 1972, we've done no-till farmer, and our farmers have been innovators. They've been involved with... um, no-till. They've been really involved with cover crops. I mean, you look across the country and maybe 7 or 8% of uh, farmers are using cover crops and our no-tillers, it's close to 80%. I argue sometimes that, uh, you know, we had the word sustainability for a while and I would argue that no-tillers are sustainable as they are. So tell me where the no-tillers are in regards to what you're doing with regenerative and are they close or they got to do some more things or way way behind? You know, as I look at the history of what this regenerative movement is, I think it started with no-till movement, to be honest with you. Um, So, I mean, I kind of watched it 
as it was going on, no-till was kind of reached a plateau, and then they started to, in what you could achieve on your farm with no-till, and then right. suddenly start, people started to talk about cover crops and how those two elements really go hand-in-hand hand to maximize the productivity of your system. And so we saw this cover crop movement, and then, man, it just opened the floodgates, didn't it, as far as yeah. what, how to incorporate biology, how to incorporate that complexity within your farm and uh, uh, ecological complexity, plant diversity, all of these different insects, animals. It's really woken us up, but it started with no-till. Where is it going? I think yeah. the next phase of this is certainly getting livestock back into the operations. Um, we need to have plants and animals growing in the same place at the same time, at least on some element and, of the farm. And and that increases the farm's resiliency. I mean, suddenly you're not beholden to market perturbations and grain commodities and things like that. You can weather those storms. It's built right into your business model. I think farmers need to start taking more than one revenue stream off of a piece of ground. Farmers that are only extracting one revenue stream, like one crop off of a piece of ground, that's dumb. They've got to be stacking enterprises here. You've got to be thinking about how to farm that smarter, much smarter. Give me an example of that. Well, you could grow two crops in the same place at the same time. Right. Intercropping okay. is really starting to pick up. Thinking about the types of crops, maybe it's perenniality within that system as strips or something along those lines, orchard systems. Uh, integrating livestock in there so that you're grazing pieces of ground so that if a crop fails, you're still taking, you know, meat sales off of that, right. egg sales. One of the things that I see is a concern in Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, most of these no-tillers have taken their fences out because they don't have any more livestock. And then at, yeah. the same, and then at the same time, they're so dependent on corn and soybeans they don't get a more diversified rotation. Yeah, that's huge. Those are both important problems or opportunities. And, right. and I think that that's a really important thing that people need to be thinking about is they need to be turning problems into opportunities. I look at weeds on my own farm and I had a, a tour group that came in and they're like, well, you got some weeds out there. And I looked out there and uh, I'm like, I don't see any weeds. I see forage. <laughs> Right. And and so we graze that. The, I mean, we use sheep as our, our vegetation management tool mm -hmm. and I'm making money off of my weeds. Yeah. Well, I think some this year with all the preventative planting acres, uh, weeds were practically a cover crop, not probably not yeah, right. the best, uh, but it was something covering the soil. Darn right it was. In your work, you're working with everything. So you got uh, above ground insects and you got below ground. You're working on both of those areas? That's right. Yep. We're really focused on the soil right now, but that's connected to everything else, isn't it? So we have a strong pollinator research program, um, honeybees, managed honeybees. So we're trying to help save the bees. We are working on um, how to diversify cropland along regenerative principles and what that means and how farmers can make those transitions in every different system that we can get our hands on. And then we've got a really strong rangeland focus too, thinking about how managing that herd of animals um, in, the, in the best possible way to increase soil health and biodiversity and profitability. So how does someone make a decision on whether they ought to be running uh, sheep or beef cattle? 
Well, I don't know why you'd stop with one or the other. Okay, there you go. Both is a good idea. Really is the best solution. I think it depends on what works for your farm and what you want to do. I think you can make either of those work real well. I don't have any beef on my farm, but I'm thinking about starting to incorporate in maybe some belted Galloways out there. Uh I just like the way that the two species kind of work together as far as their foraging and and their plant utilization. Each animal has a specialized uh, group of plants that they kind of prefer to munch on. And then I like the idea of having more than one market for my product. Yeah. So how are you uh, marketing your lamb? A lot of it's direct market. So we'll sell directly to consumers. We're not large enough where I've saturated that market at this point, and we're developing those markets even more. From what you've said, I assume your cover crops, are you're using a mix. So uh, how do you pick what hmm. goes in there and what are you using? So I don't plant cover crops. I okay. plant my I plant my annual crops into perennial warm season grass mixes. Good. So we never have bare soil, right? I'm farming in the prairie itself, mm-hmm. um, and so that's a little bit more unique than than what a lot of our farmers that we're working with on. Um, we're looking at diversity of cover mixes across the country right now. You know, the more species you can get in there, the better. But certainly having your different classes of cover species in there would be a really good deal. There's functional groups that you need to be considering, things like grasses, uh, warm and cool season grasses, maybe having something from each of those, having something from your brassicas, from your legumes, from your pea family, things like that, so that you're kind of hitting those key functional groups. And those plants all work together to fill specific niches on your farm and help make you the most productive you can be. Right. So when you're uh, seeding into these grasses, what crops are you planting? We plant weird stuff. Okay. So the biggest moneymaker on my farm is honey. I'm growing honey. So everything on my farm can have more than one revenue stream from the standpoint of if that crop fails, I can take a honey crop off of it. So I'm growing things like borage. I'm growing things like annual sweet clover. I'm growing things like Canada wild rye that has a very high value as a seed crop. All of these are seed crops. But they're also really important honey crops. The Canada wild rye is a good pollen source for the bees. But we also have an orchard system here. We also have half of the farm is devoted just to natural prairie, where I unbroken prairie that I can graze. What widths are you planting these crops? And then are you using any herbicides or controlling the grass at all or not? We don't have any agrochemicals used on this farm, okay. and we don't use tillage. Okay, so the two tools that I have for managing vegetation are fire and animals. And the timing of moving those animals and that fire through these different fields is really important as far as getting the cash crop established. I'm not interested in completely eradicating the plant community from my field. I want that, though, that plant diversity out there. And I can weather a yield hit because I'm growing higher value crops. I'd rather grow things by the pound than by the bushel. There you go. Right. We seed it directly in with seven and a half inch rows, by the way. Okay. Right. Is this a traditional spring seeding or not? Yeah, that's what we try, I guess. It all depends. Good Lord, we haven't had much of an opportunity like that in eastern South Dakota for the last (laughs) two years. Been underwater. We have a lot of places. We, I mean, we've got a lot of really good no-tours that hardly got anything planted this year. How, do you, how does a farmer value the, a honey crop? I mean, what kind of returns can you get? 
Well, I figure I can off of this farm in yeah, it's twenty nineteen. I took a thousand fifteen hundred pounds of honey off. I sell it for about eight bucks a pound. Um, so yeah, almost all of that's returned once you have your initial investment um, in the in the hive equipment. That's with a hundred hives, and that's on you know the. 19 acres or whatever that we actually crop so you can pencil it out as far as the math is concerned it's a pretty good return we have a grandson who lives in a suburb here in milwaukee but a little bit out in the country ffa member and he's been taking care of for two years the the honey plots that the ffa chapter has so he's oh learned, great learned a great deal about the beekeeping pollinators uh no tillers that are even more it, not so much in the regenerative ag, although they ought to be, but they're more traditional what happened. What do they got to do for pollinator strips, and what should they be doing? First off, stop using insecticides and fungicides on your farm. Okay. Once you do that, that means seed treatments too. We found that even if you plant flowers for these bees and other pollinators out there, that if you're using these seed treatments, that they're getting into those conservation strips, and that's a real problem. Next, think about once you're establishing these things, pick any land that you can spare and plant it in the flowering species. Diversity matters. Colors, different flowering times of the year, different floral heights, different flower architects, different types of or, you know, shapes of flowers. Mm-hmm. And then uh, realize that what you're doing by doing that isn't just you know, feeding, you know, native species or, or helping the environment. It's helped you. I mean, most flowering crops that we have experience up to a 20% yield bump just by having beehives. Mm-hmm. So by feeding these pollinators, you're actually increasing your yield. Even self-fertilizing crops like soybeans and, and sunflowers benefit. You, It's a bigger yield bump than you're going to see at a neonic. I guarantee it. We'll come back to Frank and Jonathan. Before we do so, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the Andersons, for supporting today's podcast. A nutrient management program is essential to maximizing crop productivity and yields. Providing the right nutrients at the right time throughout the growing season is key. The Andersons high yield programs make it easy to plan a season long approach for many row and specialty crops. Visit andersonsplantnutrient.com slash high yield to download the high yield programs and get instant product recommendations for corn, soybeans, wheat, potatoes, and more. Before we get back to the conversation, here is Frank Lesson with a little known no-till farmer fact. Someone recently asked what's the value of uh, residue under no-till conditions? Well, University of Nebraska has done some uh, studies that show there's a total value per ton of uh, fertility of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and sulfur of $17.85 per acre with a 200 bushel corn crop, where five tons of corn residue per acre is produced. So that $17.85 was for each ton. So if you have five tons of corn residue per acre, multiply that by 17, and uh, you'll see what the value is of leaving it on the fields. Or if you're going to take it off, then you've got increased costs for lime value, yield loss, soil loss, increased irrigation needs, raking, baling, transporting, 
And so your total cost could be as high as $75 per ton to harvest the residue. And like many no-tillers, they'd rather leave it on the ground. And now, back to the podcast. I pulled up the article we did, and uh, it was a summary of a number of speakers from the 2014 No-Till Conference at which you spoke at. And one of the things coming in there is you did a study on seed treatments, and you found there was no diff- really differences between treated and untreated soybeans in many instances, right? We replicated that study in sunflowers and in corn. Uh, we see the exact same results. I mean, we're not we're not for sale, okay? We're not selling you anything. Right. Um, what we're trying to do is no strings attached research and looking out for the farmers themselves. You guys are being sold a bill of goods here, and it's not helping you. It's hurting you with these seed treatments. Yeah, they're getting more attention than they ever have. Sure are. From companies. Yep, that's right. It's a great way for them to make money. There was some talk a few years ago that butterflies were having a problem with BT hybrids. Yeah, monarchs. uh Yeah. With anything to that? You know, I don't think that the risks associated with BT hybrids is necessarily a toxicity one. I think that what what the cost to non-target species has been with BT hybrids is simplification of the landscape. It supports people abandoning rotations and devoting additional acreage to a single species like corn or whatever other, you know, BT hybrids sure. down south, you know, cotton or whatever. Um or even soybeans now. So the toxicity angle isn't really the problem. The environmental harm of genetically modified crops has been the simplification of our food system. And that gets beyond non-target species. That's making farmers much more brittle. It may be easy in the short term, but we've really sacrificed diversity and resilience of our farms as a result of that. How about the underground animals that no-tillers and you are probably working with. What do we need to be doing better there? Well, I think we need to be making sure that the only thing that we're feeding some of these below-ground critters is is our crop in the case of pest management. So if we put other species out there, things like covers and things like that, then that's really going to help with any soil-borne pest issues. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we need to be thinking about is that you know, really, we create our pest problems, and, and a lot of that stems from how much diversity that we have in our farming operation. We have to be getting more species into our farms. That's where a lack of species is where most of our pest problems end up coming from, and a lot of that diversity is in the soil. In mm-hmm. cornfields in eastern South Dakota, we've discovered 492 insect species living in these cornfields, most of which live in the soil. Wow, that's amazing that many. Where you are in South Dakota, and South Dakota and North Dakota have seen a big increase in corn and soybean acres in recent years. Is that a good mm-hmm. move or not so good move or it doesn't matter or what? I don't think it's a good move. I'm not against corn and soybeans. Please don't don't <laughs> think that. Okay. Yeah, we gotta we but, gotta feed people and the animals. Well there you go. I am pro farmer though, and, sure. and I think that as we have simplified things, I mean, how many people are going <laughs> to, it's like, okay, I'm, you know, I want a business opportunity. I'm going to go into a town, a small town in Iowa that has seven McDonald's. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build a McDonald's. That just makes good sense, doesn't it? 
No. We've got to be thinking outside of the box here a little bit. A farm is a business, and you've got to be growing things that are worth money. Right. Corn and soybeans aren't worth a whole lot right now. There's They're in no the money. tank, and that means stacking enterprises. That means diversifying out. That means thinking about your community and working within that community. So I see corn and soybeans as one part of a bigger, bigger puzzle. And until we start to embrace that diversity, farmers are going to continue to lose. Off the website, I see that you're pushing the uh, the food system concept, and you talked about soil health and farm biodiversity. And you talked about nutrient-dense food. Tell, tell me what whole concept you've got Well, right now we need to be growing food, things that humans eat. Um, That's really important. And we need to be growing things that are nutritious. And the soil is directly related to the nutrient density, the nutrition of the farm products, be it animals or grain or vegetables or fruits, whatever. Honey is in there too. As we have diminished the biology in our soil, we're starting to very, very quickly realize how much of the nutrition of a plant is derived from biological interactions with microbes and mycorrhizal fungi and bacteria and insects and other plants under the soil. And so we've seen this decline in the nutrition of our food over the last 40 years or so you know, 30% of the protein content of different foods. In that case, uh, you know, goldenrod pollen for my bees. I've seen that starting to go down. We've seen the nutrition of most other species, other crop species starting to diminish, you know, on, on the same level. It just seems like there's this consistent trend. And a lot of that is either we already know that it's related to the biodiversity, the life in the soil, or we're about to discover it. We need to have that. Right. We have some insect and disease problems in corn and soybeans, and we see these things probably somehow needing to be controlled, but then we got natural predators. Talk a little about natural predators and how a farmer can help this, how a no-tiller ought to think about how this fits without having a chemical bill. Well, certainly predators are part of that equation, but what we've, and I entered into this whole world of regenerative ag thinking that it was a predators, predator prey interaction, you know, mm-hmm. that we could use predators as sort of these biological pesticides almost. Sure. I now realize that I was thinking too small, that, that really what we need is species out there. And, and what we find is that the more insect species that we have, that affects the entire environment in so many different ways. Number one is it improves the health of the plant. So the plants are healthier and they can resist pests and they can tolerate herbivory by pests. Number two, you've got, um, you've got uh, predators that start to become more abundant in these fields and those eat your pests. And, and then you've got things that we can't even predict, things like symbioses among different organisms. The, the microbial fauna, you know, and how that interacts with both plants and insects in order to make these plants more resistant to insect pests and then also reduce the pests themselves. So really what we find is that this, the farms that are increasing biodiversity, the life on their farms, do not have pest problems. They just don't. They're gone. Right. 
pests aren't an issue for them to think about. They save so much more money. The regenerative corn farms that we studied, they had twice the profits of their <laughs> conventional neighbors. The insecticide-treated cornfields had 10 times more pests than the ones that hadn't used insecticides. They'd replace their insecticides with diversity. So when you mentioned these 490 pests or so that you had found, the majority of them good or some bad ones or what? <laughs> 480 species in corn, almost all but three or four were either neutral or beneficial. Uh-huh. That we cannot function without these things. Right. Wow. So if somebody comes to one of your talks, a no-tiller who's pretty progressive, corn, soybeans, using cover crops or anything, and he looks at regenerative agriculture and he thinks, my gosh, do I really want to go all that way or do I go all at one time? Or what should be his first couple steps? Or what could he do even if he went, didn't believe he was going to go total regenerative yet? I don't think that a farmer should entirely change his operation all in one fell swoop. I think he right. and or he or she needs to practice. Mm-hmm. I think devote 40, 40 acres to this and then develop an entire system, one that has animals and plants in the same place at the same time. And no-till, cover crops, plant diversity in this 40 acres. I guarantee that he's gonna, he or she is going to see so many benefits from that that the whole farm will be devoted to that or similar systems within a few right. years. The other question that I get is, you know, oh, geez, you know, this is all this regenerative stuff sounds great, but what's it going to cost me to change? And I think that that's really the wrong question. I think that at this point in farming, the question is, what's it going to cost you not to change? It's going to cost you your farm. It's going to cost you your grandkids. What's it worth? What's it worth not to change? We need to wake up. Well, there's some practitioners of regenerative movement have done really well. Gabe Brown in your own state has been a big proponent of it and really made it work. When when you talk and when he talks, it's got to open people's eyes to what might be going on. The interesting thing is that you talked about 40 acres. Is Most of these no-tillers are already doing test plots. They're doing test plots on varieties or hybrids. So it's not out of the question that they just don't know. Perfect. They could they could do this easily. I think farmers need to understand that their future is is dependent on them starting to think outside the box. There's a lot of money being made off of farming right now, but it isn't necessarily the farmers. It's time to wake up. Let's keep more money in our pockets. Do you see organic no-till growing? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that'll be a huge part of it, but I don't think the organic label is necessary. Mm -hmm. If you can make more money off of it, then great. But I think you're going to make more money by direct marketing your product no matter what you do. Right, there's no doubt. I mean, in some years, organic people have done very well, and some years there hasn't been that much price difference. And if everybody starts organic, there won't be the premium that there is now anyway. I think that, you know, I mean, we're far from saturating the organic market. um, But I think that as we go that route, you know, farmers are just going to realize how much more profitable their operation is, even at normal prices or conventional prices when they're farming regeneratively. And that's going to keep them afloat much quicker than an insurance check is from the government. So you mentioned uh, orchards. What do you have in your orchards? Well, we have a pretty diverse stand. Um, It's small still, and the trees are about two years away uh, uh, from bearing fruit. 
but we've got apples, pears, peaches, plums, apricots, Saskatoon berries. Elsewhere on the farm, we've got raspberries, strawberries, grapes, elderberries. Which we're wow. really trying to get diversity onto the farm. And all so, of those are great pollinator plants, by the mm-hmm. way. So something like apples, are you going to be able to get going to work for you without fungicides? Yeah, yeah. You know what we're doing is we've got I sowed the prairie underneath the orchard. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna. I've got pastured pork and sheep and chickens that are living <laughs> under there. So, you know, fruit trees abort fruit that's sick, right? Yeah, and yeah. the problem is that we've separated the livestock out of that system, and so the pests end up cycling underneath the trees and reinfecting the trees. You get these huge pest plumes. The reason that the trees abort the fruit is because normally in an ecosystem, there's animals that go under there and eat that up. Mm-hmm. The trees are trying to heal themselves. But we've screwed it up by by getting that out of there, so we put that back in. So when you're using these animals, are you are you using rotational grazing? That's right, high intensity rotational grazing, and then we just keep them moving. So how often would you move them in some of your typical acres? For sheep, we move them every day or two, and then um, we graze them real tight. We hit it hard, and then we move them. And then the pigs, maybe every four days or so, we try to move them. They're real destructive. So no-till is absolutely necessary, right? We've got to stop disturbing that soil. Right. At some point, though, to maintain diversity in our systems, we've got to have disturbance, right? Otherwise, you're going to attain a late successional system. That's not what we want. That's a pretty undiverse system, actually. And so punctuated disturbances become really important after a certain point. We're far from that point in most cropping systems. What that disturbance does then is it allows additional diversity to maintain itself within your farm. There is no better punctuated disturbance than pastured pigs. <laughs> I mean, you, they hit the ground. You come in afterwards with the, they they prepare the seed bed real well for any cover crops you might want to grow, and then um, and then it's a it's a great way of increasing the diversity and adding a revenue stream onto your operation. Right. Well, it's same thing with beef cattle. The the, the hoof movement is a form of tillage. Absolutely. Get some of yeah, you're darn right. Right. One of the things that you mentioned was fire. Mm-hmm. How are you using this? What we'll do is we'll do a spring burn every few years on our crop ground, and then we get right in there afterwards and get the crop in. And those are some of our more successful crops. But you don't want to overburn. Otherwise, we have a weird farm, okay? I'm not going to, yeah. So, so fire works really well as a tool for us because yeah. of that perennial cover. My son and I were uh, down in Moline yesterday at the John Deere Archives on a different project, and we were looking through old uh, farm equipment magazines from 1910 to 1915. And one of the things I saw were they had manure spreaders, but on the top of the manure spreader, they had like a straw spreader, and they were going out and taking straw and spreading it on their bare ground. So even as early as 1900 or something, that my God, there were machines for spreading straw, which got them some residue on the uh, soil surface all winter long. Yep, sure did. They well, were thinking, we've got things we can learn. We can, we've got things we can teach that previous generation, too, but we also have things we can learn from them. Yeah. I'll give you a chance for a commercial spiel. How can a farmer get involved with you, uh, help you with research or finances or whatever? Right. Well, right now we are run off of donations, and so we're, our science 
um, you're not going to see anything like it out there. It, uh, this isn't. This is something that is driven almost entirely by the farmers themselves. And so, if you want to see that continue, you get uh, people have to start to start standing up for it and and help us out by donating. So, give me an address or how we could donate. Um, go to our website, ecdysis.bio, that's E-C-D-Y-S-I-S dot bio, and there's a donate page there. Otherwise, you can mail a check to us at 46958 188th Street, Esteline, South Dakota, 57234. So earlier you said that when you left ARS and you had this idea, you weren't sure it was going to work. And if it hadn't worked, what would you be doing today? <laughs> Oh boy! I think I uh, I'd have focused entirely on the farm, or I'd have focused entirely on the research. But doing both at the same place at the same time has really been important for us to shape the kinds of questions that farmers actually need answered. Well, I looked at your website, and under under your listing, dream job, you had monk. Oh, <laughs> there's a lot of days. A nice, quiet existence is very much uh, desired, but for right now, that's not where I'm supposed to be, I think. Well, there's probably days that you have to pray for good weather or rain or something. Um, Yep, or sanity. Right, right. Hey, this (laughs) this has been great, and so I appreciate this. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you giving this some time. All right, John, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, take care. That was Jonathan Lundgren and Frank Lessiter in a discussion originally uploaded back in 2019. Before we wrap up today's episode, here's Frank Lessiter one more time. As we get bigger acreages and bigger equipment, we see more people using 24-row and 36-row no-till planters. But that's not even close to what the biggest unit might be. Down in Australia, there's a grower, Gavin Zell and his son, they farmed 47,000 acres of no-till wheat, barley, and chickpeas, and they've got an air seeder that's 212 feet wide. And on a good day, they can seed 2,500 acres with this rig. It's a unique rig, it's a drill, doesn't have any fertilizer on it, it's just getting the seed in the ground. So we got a ways to go till we match the Aussies and uh, wide equipment with drills that they're using down under in Australia. Thanks, Frank. Thanks also to our sponsor, the Andersons, for helping to make possible the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. That's no-tillfarmer.com slash podcasts. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at B-O-C-O-N-N-O-R at lessonermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2413. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. For Frank and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Brian O'Connor. Thanks for listening.